Well, hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Learning Curve with Kara Kandel, myself, and Gerard Robinson, brought to you, of course, we, we need to mention, by Pioneer Institute, our friends at Pioneer here, silent in the background, but important nonetheless. And Gerard, I got to tell you this week, you might hear my kids coming into the office because it seems to be a theme today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I would love to hear them say a few things in Spanish, since I've heard you speak in Spanish, and I was quite yeah. impressed. So well, if you're not, if you're not like a native Spanish speaker, um, you know, then my Spanish is impressive. Uh, yeah, a lot of people are surprised <laughs> here that I, that I do speak Spanish at home with my children, but you know, um, my spouse is from Buenos Aires, which sounds uh-huh. more exotic than it is. Sorry to all the Argentines out there, but they'll probably agree with me. It's a, be- no, it's a beautiful place, and we're really lucky to, uh, to be able to speak Spanish at home. But when you know, when you get to the point, Gerard, where your children correct your grammar in Spanish, then I think you know. Mm. You're yeah, yeah. Make fun well, of I must be, I guess I'm moving up the uh, ladder because my uh, children are correcting my ebonics. So things are moving. <laughs> there you go. I mean, we, you know, they, they just always have to make us feel great about ourselves every day. Our children remind us how old and incompetent we are. Anyhow, we have got, we got a great show coming up today. I'm very excited to speak with Carrie McDonald, who has in fact been um, the host of this podcast before in, in months prior. She was a great pinch hitter for us and I'm, I'm really excited to talk to her. But of course, as always, we've got stuff in the news. Now, um, Gerard, I'm going to, we've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, Catholic schools. Here we are mm-hmm. in, in a moment where uh, HuffPost has an article titled, at least 100 Catholic schools across the country may not reopen this fall. So I think it was just a week or two ago, we talked about the closing of one of the oldest Catholic schools in the country. But now we've actually got, um, you know, the popular press picking up on this. Um this is really in a time when we are, you know, there's so much fighting over who gets what money from the federal government. And I think we talked a little bit last week about pushback on behalf of some states for any private schools receiving um, their fair share of equitable services under these emergency mm-hmm. Well, you know, now the things that we, um, that many of us uh, who, who think about private schools and private school choice uh, are seeing, uh, the things that we're predicting are coming true, right? So the fact that some of these Catholic schools, like I bet you many of our listeners realize, but some don't, that so often these schools are operating, um, charging tuition that only manages to cover 60 to 80% of their operating expenses because they are committed to serving kids who really can't afford to pay tuition, um, that these schools have seen um, a complete downturn in philanthropic dollars, not only because if you're a faith-based school, maybe you look to your congregation that hasn't been meeting to be able to you know, donate during, um, during Sunday services, but also because philanthropists and funders, and maybe we need to have some of them on this show, I'm just thinking out loud here, you know, they too have been pivoting in this moment to really meet very immediate needs. Well, the needs of certain Catholic schools and, and beyond Catholic schools too, other private schools that certain population of students are now coming into to really stark relief. And this is going to be a really difficult thing, not only because anytime kids' education is disrupted, it's a difficult thing. 
Uh, and, you mm-hmm. know, now we're talking about a time that is already unprecedented. And then children are going to see their beloved schools collapse. Um, districts are going to experience this, too. Districts are strapped. There's going to be an influx. If 100 Catholic schools close in this country, districts are going to have to absorb those students in a time when districts themselves are considering layoffs. So I think we're going to have to keep beating this drum because it's an important one to bring to the fore. And I really hope that states and, by the way, the federal government, um, who hasn't been showing much promise with this HEROES Act that we hope won't won't actually uh, make it, um, not showing a lot of love for, let alone private schools. I think let's let's talk about showing love for all students, regardless of where they go to school. So that's my take, Gerard. What's what's on your mind? So for me, I am a big supporter of civic education and believe it's important to the formation of young people and for the role teachers could play in it. So your state of Massachusetts, or at least one of your states that you've spent time in, um, East Hampton High School is the winner of the 2020 We the People competition. And since 1987, more than 30 million students and 75,000 educators have participated in We the People program. Now, East Hampton High School is in the western part of Massachusetts. When you think of the state, you immediately think of uh, Boston. Uh, Well, there are other parts. And East Hampton uh, has had an opportunity to go to the competition before, but the highest it ever ranked was 19th. Well, this year they placed first and they were very excited. Uh, place, the school that placed second was Lincoln High School in Oregon, and um, third was a, a Maggie Walker Governor School in Virginia, a school I'm very familiar with. But this was a big win for East uh, Hampton High School for two reasons. Uh, number one, they worked really hard to make sure that they studied everything they needed to know about the Constitution, about philosophy, about political theory. And they had a chance to debate and to talk about it, not in person, not in D.C. like it's been for a very long time, but they had to do it virtually. And another reason they won is because of the strong work of their teacher, Kelly Brown. Now, this is a moment for us to celebrate teachers. We know that because 50 plus million kids are out of school, many of them are at home, some of them are learning from teachers online. But if there's a great appreciation now for parental options, guess what? There's a lot of support now for what teachers do. And Kelly Brown is an example. Uh, since 2006, she's led uh, the high school as an instructor in history. She was also the 2010 Massachusetts History Teacher of the Year. And she received an award in 2016 for the excellence of promoting civics education from the Massachusetts Council for Social Studies. And she said, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my time to working with high school students to prepare them for this contest. And again, while they've gone before, they finished first. And the students were just elated uh, by the fact that they won. Now, because of social distancing, they can't celebrate the way they would have done in 2019. So they found unique ways to do so. But uh, Kelly and the school administrators say they will find a way to celebrate this big victory for what someone says is a small school in a very big pond called We the People. And I'm always glad to see sometimes not per se an underdog, but to see a newcomer to the game. And I just think it's a, a good win for the students, for the school, uh, but really for the city that supports that high school. 
Yes. And yay. For, well, first of all, thanks so much for, for mentioning that Massachusetts is not just Boston. <laughs> it's a beautiful state. <laughs> but yay, teacher. Go, Kelly. And congratulations to the kids. This is like, I love that we get a feel-good story. And those kids, you know what? Even if they can't celebrate right now in the way they want to, they're celebrating. That, that's, a, that's just such such a cool thing. Such a big win. I love that story. So, okay, Gerard. So next up, we're going to talk, we're going to talk to Carrie McDonald. Um, she, she's been, you know, hitting it in the media a little bit lately, uh, talking about the reality of homeschooling and not the homeschooling that I'm doing right now, but actual <laughs> really, really excited to talk to her about that right after this little musical interlude. So we're so happy to have with us today, Carrie McDonald, who's a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education or fee.org. She's also uh, great for us right now, the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside of the Conventional Classroom. She's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a regular Forbes contributor. Carrie's research interests include homeschooling and alternatives to school, self-directed learning, education entrepreneurship, parent empowerment, school choice, in family and child policy. Her articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, NPR, Education Next, Reason Magazine, City Journal, and Entrepreneur, among others, as if that weren't enough. Uh, she's got a master's in education policy from Harvard and a bachelor's degree in economics from Bowdoin College. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, shout out to Cambridge, with her husband and four children. And we have to add, she has previously hosted The Learning Curve, so we're really happy to have you back. Thanks so much for joining us today, Carrie. Oh, it's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So here we are. You're you're right. A hop, skip, and a jump for me down in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jordan and I like to joke about the weather, but we finally got a beautiful sunny day. Um, and so we've we've got you inside, but not for long. Um, but lot, lots to talk about. So uh, you know, we would be remiss not to talk about the current moment. But I hope to ask you sort of about pre-current moment as well. So right now, you know, obviously COVID-19 has has many parents, it, probably not homeschoolers, but are certainly attempting to engage in some form of home education, using digital learning, just trying to navigate all of this. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just what's the homeschool, the actual people who intentionally choose to homeschool, what does that landscape look like in this country? And how would you characterize what the rest of us are trying to do right now? Well, I think you really nailed it that the 50 million U.S. students who are now not in school and are at home with their families during the pandemic are uh, not engaging in what we would consider authentic homeschooling, right? This has been called crisis schooling or uh, school at home learning or pandemic homeschooling, all kinds of different names. But it really isn't anything like authentic homeschooling. Of course, all of us right now are disconnected from our larger communities and are not able to be immersed in those people, places, and things of our neighborhoods. Um, we are not able to go to the library and the museum and take classes and gather with friends. And so this is hard on all of us, uh, you know, traditional homeschoolers included. But I do think that it provides a bit of a glimpse for many families on what learning without schooling could be like, particularly to the extent that families are able to disconnect 
from curriculum directives or schooling expectations. You see in many districts across the country, um, school year being ended early, you know, sort of ending this virtual learning experiment, hoping that in the fall, maybe they'll, um, you know, improve some of the technology and, and some of the outreach. So some of those cases, you know, districts are just en ending school early. Other districts concerned about educational equity have indicated that any curriculum that's being sent home now is optional and for enrichment purposes only. And so I think that there is some more flexibility for families to really um, see what it's like to tap into learning without schooling, particularly, as you mentioned, with all of these incredible online learning resources that are sprouting, uh, many of which, most of which really are free. Uh, you know, you can learn foreign language for free with Duolingo. You can go on Khan Academy and learn almost anything. And they've really ramped up some of their resources. Um, you have, you know, textbook publishers and tutoring companies offering a lot of their programming for free. So it's a great time to, uh, you know, really realize all of the uh, incredible tools that, that exist for facilitating learning. And I think some families are really getting a glimpse of this and are, um, are enjoying the freedom and flexibility of learning without schooling. In fact, EdChoice just came out recently with a survey where they asked uh, families how they were coping during the pandemic. And they discovered that more than half of them have a more favorable view of homeschooling as a result of the pandemic uh, than they did before, even though, of course, again, this is nothing like what we would expect of typical homeschooling. So if those parents are encouraged by what they're seeing now, uh, you know, just wait until they would, might experience the real thing. A more recent survey just out last week by Real Clear Opinion Research discovered that 40% of parents, this was over 2,000 uh, parents that they surveyed, over 40% of them said they plan to choose homeschooling or virtual learning post-pandemic uh, or when the lockdowns end. So there is a real movement, I think, towards um, increased interest in homeschooling, virtual schooling, and other types of alternatives to school. Yeah, I, I read that 40% statistic too, and I, I found it at first really shocking. But then when you think about it, I mean, I, I think it's very interesting that parents are discovering both how much and or maybe how little, of course, it's a perception, but how much and or how little uh, their kids are actually doing when they are at school. And not that what's happening right now is actually reflective in most cases of what happens during the school day. But I think it's like getting a glimpse into that world of sort of like what the expectations are or have been. It, it's It's just an entirely different view, which I can I can see would make some parents who didn't previously think homeschooling was possible for them say, yeah, maybe, maybe this is a reality. But yeah, I also, and if I could, if I could just add yeah. to Kara, uh, because that's a really good point. I know, you know, even a, a neighbor of mine um, was commenting that her 10 year old who goes to public school was um, engaging in a lesson with a teacher over Zoom, of course, and the teacher was reading a book to the class that this child read to herself four years earlier. Yeah. Uh, and that was a real um, eye opener for this family. They said, well, wow, you know, and they also said, gee, you know, their, their child's just thriving with all of this 
uh, opportunity to explore her own interests and read books that are interesting to her and write short stories. And they're really seriously considering homeschooling um, even after the pandemic. I think, you know, I would be surprised if we don't see an uptick in the number of homeschoolers when this is over. I think for sure we will see uh, at least temporary or short-term homeschooling. I think that particularly mm. as images start uh, sprouting from around the world with schools reopening. I think a lot of parents are turned off by seeing these photos of children wearing face shields or masks all day long or um, engaging in you know, strict social distancing, not able to go to recess or the playground, not able to go to the cafeteria or the gym. Uh, and I think that that's really going to cause a lot of parents, at least in the short term, to keep their children home. I think we also have evidence from earlier epidemics, for example, the 1916 polio epidemic in New York City, when they reopened schools, one quarter of the students didn't return to school, even though the schools were open because parents uh, were afraid or reluctant to send them back. We see in Denmark, one of the first European countries to reopen schools, thousands of parents uh, did not send their children back. And so I think we'll, we'll definitely see uh, at least short-term homeschooling as this all unfolds. Yeah, I, and I think a lot of parents are wrestling right now. I mean, probably 50% of your mind sometimes, especially if you are a full-time working parent, is saying, oh my goodness, please get these children back to school. But you're right, when you when you consider what school could look like, uh, many of us uh, might not be willing to take the risk. Um, I want to ask you a question, Carrie, about to, to back away from where we are right now for a minute. Can you explain for folks... Um, what the actual typical, if there even is one, who is a typical homeschooler? Because I think you you spoke just a tiny bit um, to sort of like perceptions of homeschooling versus what people are realizing it can or would be now. What do you think is the general perception of who a homeschooler, and I'm talking about intentional homeschoolers here, um, who, who they are versus what the reality of the families who have chosen homeschooling in this country? Right. So, um, Typical homeschooling, when it's not 50 million students, uh, is about 2 million U.S. students, um, which is about 3.5% of the overall K-12 school-age population is homeschooled. And in becoming increasingly reflective of the U.S. population as a whole, in fact, Pioneer Institute, of course, put out uh, a wonderful piece on homeschooling uh, in the 21st century just a couple of years ago, really making this point that homeschooling today is demographically, geographically, socioeconomically, and ideologically diverse and becoming more so. In fact, you see the number of black homeschoolers doubled between 2007 and 2012 to about 8% of the overall homeschool population. And the percentage of Hispanic homeschoolers is 25% of the overall um, homeschooling population, which mirrors the Hispanic population in the overall K-12 school age uh, group. So it's definitely becoming much more reflective of the, of the overall homeschool population. And the, the number one motivator for today's homeschooling families, according to the most recent data from the U.S. Department of Education, is concern about the environment of other schools, including safety, drugs, and negative peer pressure. Wow. It, it's really fascinating because I don't think that that is um, the general perception. Um, and I know that Gerard has a lot of great questions for you, too, about uh, beyond this current moment. <laughs> so, Well, so good to hear your voice. Hope things are going well for you. 
Thanks, Gerard. Great to be with you. For the listening audience, uh, she and I actually met uh, via a text. Uh, it was either through, um, probably it was Twitter, um, a couple of years ago, based upon something I had read. She was kind enough to respond. And so when her name uh, rose to the top as someone to interview, I was quite excited. So for all of you who are listening, you never know what response you'll get when you send out a, uh, a text <laughs> to someone about something they've written. So here's my question for you. I'm pretty sure you've been bombarded with the what some call the Harvard anti-homeschool article and all the things that uh, have come from it. And there have been a lot of great responses and you have weighed in. There's one quote that I'd like to talk about, and here it is. Behind the rapid growth of the homeschooling movement is the growth in the conservative evangelical movement. Now, we know demographically that a number of homeschoolers are, in fact, back people of faith. Within the Christian domain, um, you've got Catholics, you also have Protestants, and within the Protestant realm, you've got a lot of striation. The point I find interesting is the part about the conservative evangelical movement, because there are liberal evangelicals who are in the movement. And somehow being a conservative tends to mean you're a segregationist, tends to mean you are isolated, tends to mean uh, rural, when in fact we know that those same demographics also fall into other areas. How do you, what are you reading behind that? Why do you think that's, uh, that's in there in the first place? Right. So just to back up a little bit, you're right. The, there's been a lot of buzz recently about longtime Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartholet's Harvard Magazine interview, recently a Harvard Gazette interview about her work, that it reflects or summarizes uh, her 80-page Arizona Law Review article recently published that calls for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Of course, homeschooling is legal in all 50 U.S. states, has been since the mid-1990s, and now uh, she and others are calling for a presumptive ban. And you're right, one of the, the things that she... Um, indicates as sort of a, a rationale for calling for this ban or at least heavy regulation of homeschooling that would in essence make homeschooling look just like public school at home is this uh, mischaracteriz mischaracterization really of 21st century American homeschooling. You know, twice in her Arizona Law Review article, she says that up to 90% of today's U.S. homeschoolers are driven by conservative Christian beliefs. And this just simply is not true. In fact, again, that uh, U.S. Department of Education uh, study, the most recent data we have on, on homeschoolers, found that only 16% of respondents indicated that a desire to provide religious instruction was their top motivator. And as I said earlier uh, to Kara, the number one motivator for today's homeschooling families, the motivator they indicated most often as their reason for choosing homeschooling is concern about uh, the environment of other schools. So it's simply not true that it's uh, overwhelmingly conservative Christians. In fact, the modern homeschooling movement really began in the 1970s as part of um, a, the leftist countercultural movement. And then it became mm -hmm. much more bipartisan, really grew in numbers and in strength um, through the, the Christian conservative movement in the 1980s and, and really helped uh, in terms of getting it legalized um, in the 80s and throughout the 90s. Um, but now, again, much more reflective of the overall um, American population. And I, I, But I would just say a couple of things further on that. First is that 
even if 90% of today's uh, homeschoolers were driven by conservative Christian beliefs, so what? You know, why would that um, indicate a reason for us to heavily regulate the practice or call for a presumptive ban? You know, if 90% of today's homeschoolers were driven by atheist beliefs or Buddhist beliefs, why would that uh, lead to a, a call for this kind of uh, heavy regulation? I think it's particularly disturbing where Bartholet indicates that one of her um, real reasons for wanting to ban or have a presumptive ban on homeschooling is that she wants to make sure that young people uh, express a tolerance for diverse viewpoints. And yet, of course, you know, here she is being very intolerant towards these conservative Christian viewpoints. Um, and then just to finally add that today's homeschoolers are um, quite tolerant of diverse viewpoints because they are embedded in their communities. You know, a recent study by Daniel Hamlin out of the University of Oklahoma came out about a year ago, found that homeschoolers have high levels of what he calls cultural capital, that they are frequently going to the museum and libraries and sporting events and music events and other cultural and civic um, experiences in some way, in, in many cases, to a larger degree than their schooled peers because of the freedom and flexibility of their homeschool schedule. I'm glad you mentioned the part about banning homeschool because it's, you know, the, the listening audience should be really aware that people went to jail or were incarcerated because they chose to homeschool. Um, it was in the late uh, 1990s that a chance to meet a group of homeschool parents. It was at a bail conference, uh, in fact, in Milwaukee and met several uh, people who either were homeschooled parents or children who were homeschooled. One was a professor at a conservatory in Dallas. Another was a professor of engineering at a community college. And I spoke to her mom and dad, and they said, when we started homeschooling, we were put in jail. And then they pointed, so was that lady, and so was that guy. And I found myself talking to a number of people, some in tears, about their experiences, even in Washington, D.C., having to go underground. So when we say banning, as you mentioned, it wasn't too long ago that it became legal, but to say that without the context of the human aspect of it, I think is unfortunate. Let's go yeah. to the R word of, of regulation. You know, I'm a, uh, a person who supports the role of parental options in education. Uh, in a previous life, I had an opportunity, for example, in Virginia, to uh, introduce legislation through our governor, Bob McDonald, to support virtual education. And we thought this would be a great conduit for homeschool families to come in. And then in other work, I also supported education savings accounts and vouchers. A number of people in the homeschool community, while we thought it was a good opening or pathway for them to come in, often say, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, we like what we're doing. And even though you're opening up the door for parental options, opportunity, and choice. In some ways, you're actually uh, inhibiting our ability to provide an education to our child. What did I get right? What did I get wrong in my thinking? Right, well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit to your earlier observation about, you're right, the level of persecution that um, the homeschooling pioneers mm -hmm. had to endure um, mm -hmm. being, you know, having to really go to court or be arrested for keeping their kids out of school. In fact, you know, one of these lingering stereotypes about homeschoolers as being, um, you know, isolated from their communities 
harkens back to that time before homeschooling was really legally recognized when a lot of families um, were required by their local district that if they wanted to homeschool, they had to be in their homes during school hours. So they couldn't leave <laughs> their homes, uh, you know, during those hours. Or in other cases, if homeschooling wasn't legal in that area, they were afraid to leave, you know, during the school hours. So uh, I think it's interesting to look at the kind of history of some of these stereotypes of homeschooling and realize a lot of that had to do um, with the fact that that homeschooling freedoms were not always uh, secure and really parents had to fight for the right to educate their children as they chose. Um, I, I think if, if you're talking about education choice mechanisms, um, in particular, education savings accounts would be probably the most ideal type of uh, education choice option for homeschooling families because it, it does what I'm suggesting. It separates education from schooling in a way that, say, vouchers don't, where in vouchers you're kind of moving tuition uh, from or you know tax dollars from a public school into a private school and using a portion of that, those monies for tuition, whereas education savings accounts use that th those monies for uh, books and supplies and tutors and classes and other kinds of resources in addition to potentially tuition. Um, there's a lot of debate really within the current homeschool population around education choice mechanisms where some families will say, you know, this opens up the door for more experimentation, more families to take advantage of different ways of learning. You see often, particularly in the last, say, five to 10 years, there's been a surge in hybrid homeschooling programs where young people are at home for part of the week and then at a learning center or a micro school, uh, you know, two to three or four days a week. And education savings accounts and those types of mechanisms can really defray some of those costs. But you're right, other homeschoolers will say, you know, this could impact our independence. And if we start opening the door to regulation through um, these education choice mechanisms, that could threaten our ability to independently homeschool, even if we never take advantage of those choice mechanisms. And I think that's a, a legitimate concern and something we really should be vigilant about and watchful for. And what you've just explained to us is the diversity of opinion within the homeschool movement itself which isn't very different from the type of diversity of yes and no we find in traditional public schools, in charter schools, and even in the voucher movement. And the point about tolerance, and then I'll, I'll stop, if you take a look at the, at the, at the uh, U.S. Department of Education's civil rights database, where they uh, accumulate uh, complaints, uh, often filed by students, families, others, as it relates to public school, you will see a level of intolerance as to why, in fact, people had to file uh, claims because they were attacked, uh, often because of who they are, what they had to say, or what they believe. So if there's concern about intolerance in the homeschool movement, I think there's just a question about intolerance in general uh, across the U.S. society and something we can deal with and definitely not something that we should harness solely as a problem or a reality for homeschooling. But in fact, maybe it's through homeschooling that the rest of us will learn something new. Right. I mean, I think that's a really good point that, um, you know, one of the, the arguments that uh, Professor Barthollet makes in her Arizona Law Review piece is, um, you know, we need to have a presumptive ban on homeschooling uh, to protect children, homeschool children from abuse. And of course, there's um, really compelling research that shows that homeschooled children are uh, 
on average, less likely to be abused than their schooled peers. Um, and then you bring up the point that abuse is rampant in public schools. I mean, headlines abound of uh, school public school teachers being arrested and convicted for physical abuse against children. Of course, we have widespread peer abuse through bullying in schools. And then a 2004 U.S. Department of Education study found that one out of 10 public school students would be sexually abused by a public school educator by the time they graduate from high school. Uh, so in many cases, parents are fleeing abuse uh, in public schools and choosing homeschooling as that exit ramp um, from that abuse. And so I think that that is a really important thing to remember that, you know, being regulated by the uh, institution that you are fleeing uh, is problematic. Yeah, and, and let's not, sorry, Kara, let's not forget too that, and certainly not to paint any type of school with one brush, including public schools or district schools, but there's also abuse in the form of educational neglect, <laughs> which, which we of course know is rampant across this country and children just simply not having the opportunities they need to learn and, and to grow. Um, Carrie, I have one final question for you, and I've been, I've been debating in my head because I've been tempted to ask you about this moment for parents and your advice, given all of your knowledge on the subject. But I've decided I'm more tempted to ask you, especially because of, um, of what you just discussed in terms of education savings accounts as a possible vehicle for, um, for homeschoolers, especially as the population of homeschoolers grows. But we only have um, five active education savings accounts in this country right now. And one of them actually just halted Tennessee, right, that um, was about to get off the ground and has been held up by the courts. So what would be your advice for policymakers right now in the context of a growing population of parents who may indeed be interested in homeschooling? I mean, right now we've got governors thinking about how they're going to spend their funds. We've got, you know, looking for a fourth federal package for COVID and certainly not the purview of the federal government to, to think about um, who gets to do what. But is there advice that you would have that you would want policymakers to at least think about in this time? That's a great question. I think if you look to states like uh, Arizona, what, that leads the way in education choice and education innovation, it's really extraordinary to see the amount of experimentation that is encouraged there and the, the options available to families. Um, for example, you have you know not only a robust homeschooling community in Arizona. But you have growing networks of in-home microschools, which are, um, you know, these sort of small, intimate They're environments, so cool. yeah. typically with, you know, a dozen kids, multi-age. This could be a model that more families are interested in, particularly as they see, uh, again, these social distancing measures in conventional schools. Um, there's one particular fast-growing network of microschools in Arizona called the Prenda Network that operates on a virtual charter school uh, system in Arizona, so it's tuition-free for Arizona residents. You see a lot with virtual learning coming out of Arizona, again, frequently tied to their um, embrace of uh, charter schools, either uh, Arizona State University Prep Digital. I know that the Pioneer Institute's uh, interviewed um, them before that they're doing some amazing things for providing high school diplomas digitally to uh, young people around the country uh, and then giving them access to college credits to defray a lot of the higher education costs 
Um, and there's just so much innovation coming from that. So I think that the more states can embrace uh, education choice mechanisms, whether it's charter schools or education savings accounts, um, virtual learning, digital learning, and really align those same lines, encourage education entrepreneurship, because I think we're poised for a real education transformation here. And I think it will really only get off the ground if we provide the conditions to encourage entrepreneurs to create K-12 learning models that we haven't even imagined yet. Yeah, that's great. So policy wonks, policymakers, people who advise the policy, I hope you're listening to that. Is it's it's really nice, Carrie, I'd say to end with a little bit of sort of like optimism for what the future could look like when we've been mired in so much sort of depressing stuff. I think that this is this is this could be a really exciting moment. So thanks so much for being with us today and for our audience again. That was Carrie McDonald. Absolutely check out her book unschooled, raising curious, well-educated children outside the conventional classroom. Thank you so much, Carrie. And we hope to have you back again, whether it's host, guest, whatever. You're welcome anytime. Oh, thanks so much, Carrie. Yeah, so it's fee.org slash Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y, and you can uh, connect with me there. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. Oh, great. Thanks again. All right. And as always, we are going to leave you listeners with a tweet of the week. This one coming from Politico on, um, that, wow, Gerard, that was the Midwesterner coming out in me. Politico <laughs> on May 18th. <laughs> and, um, you know, you just can't, you can't take the Michigan out of the girl. Um, and that's okay. I love it. This one's coming from Politico and it's a it's a quote from Governor Jar- Jared Polis out of um, Colorado, as you know. And he says, it's just not going to look like any other school year. So of course, talking about reopening schools, I mean, so many people weighing in on this right now. I'd like to say, I heard my own kid weigh in on this this morning in a one-on-one conversation with her teacher. And I heard her very sweetly say, Mr. Bryan, are we going to be back in school next year? And Mr. Bryan, he handled it really, really well and told her the truth and said, you know, we just don't know. And I think that everybody wants to know the answer to that question Paulus is saying that um, that as, as many of us are thinking, you know, uh, schools are probably going to return and, and be somewhat of a hybrid environment. So thinking about uh, do we have 50 percent of the kids in school at a time, A week, B week, A, a day, B day. I mean, the, the possibilities are frightening, not endless, but multiple. And but also at the same time, I think if we put our optimist hat on kind of cool. Because if we can get this right, especially for working families and also for for families that have really, really little ones thinking about, you know, kids preschool daycare age, um, I think this could be a whole new world. But something to think about and something we'll keep talking about on this podcast in coming weeks, I think. And next week, we're going to have another exciting guest, Dana Joya, who is an internationally acclaimed poet and writer. He is the former poet laureate for my former state of California and the chairman of the National Endowment of the Arts. And at a time when poetry and writing and ideas are very important to people uh, who are at home uh, trying to think deeply about life and other things, I think this will be a great person to listen to. Yeah, I mean, right? Who who can say that we don't have just awesome, diverse guests? Everything from, you know, uh, poets to homeschooling experts to pandemic experts. I mean, I think, I think this is pretty cool. So looking forward to it, Gerard. 
And uh, looking forward to talking to you again next week. Take care. Take care.